to myself, and I think I have a picture of my family up here. You want to know me? I have, uh, yeah, aren't they awesome? I have a, a beautiful family. My wife, Sue, we've been married just over five years, and our two uh, Corindian kids, Korean Indians, you know, if we're from Iceland and Cuba, we call them little ice cubes, but for from Korea and India, so uh, we call them little Corindians. Um, that's Hallie and Josiah, and, and they're awesome. I hope you get a chance to meet them someday. Uh, maybe tomorrow at the Barn Bash, maybe they'll show up. And if they do, they'll probably be hiding the whole time. But they're great. Uh, but, you know, long before I was, uh, I was had kids and was married, I was, I was young once, like you. I was a college student. I went to Purdue. Um, and, uh, you know, I think college is just a great time of life. It's a great time to explore and, you know, to, to learn things. And maybe some of you are here exploring about Christianity, exploring about, you know, uh, exploring crew. You know, one thing I did uh, was uh, my dorm was going on a ski trip, and so I decided, you know, I should learn how to ski. Has anyone here been skiing before? Yeah? Okay, a few people, you know, over from Indiana, but it's like, hey, let's go go skiing. And so my roommate and I decided we're going to go skiing, and at the last minute, uh, he bailed on me. So I went skiing with a group of about 40 students from the dorm. I really knew, like, one guy, barely. And uh, we drive up to Michigan, and we get up to uh, to the slopes, and going to the, uh, the ski lift, and right in front of the ski lift, there's this little bump, and uh, I'm trying to get over, and I can't. I'm just going up, and I come back down. I go up, and I come back down, and this long line of angry mob of people, like, like, at least they look angry. I mean, they're just cold, but they looked angry, and they wanted to go. I'm like, okay, yeah, you just go ahead. You just go ahead of me. You go ahead, and it was a long line. I just kept on going, and they, they all get on, get up, and I'm still trying to get over, and, and everyone's long gone, so I'm by myself, and I'm like, okay. And I look off in the distance, and I see a uh, cross-country skiing uh, area. And I'm like, yeah, well, I guess I can go cross-country skiing. Uh, I've never done that before. I've heard it's supposed to be really good for you. It's supposed to be good exercise. It's supposed to be lots of fun. I got all day. I'm going to go cross-country skiing. So I make my way over to the cross-country skiing little course there. And I'm like, I'm working. I'm working really hard. I'm pushing. And I'm, I'm like trying to move over there. I'm like, oh, this, is, this is a lot of work. This has got to be working out my legs pretty well. And I'm like, oh, I keep doing this. I'm watching these other people go by, and they have like smiles on their faces, they're moving, and then I'm like, man, I'm just, I'm not smiling at all. I'm like, this, this is hurting. And I'm like, oh, guys, push hard. Okay, okay, let's keep what they're doing. Maybe I'll do this right. And eventually I'm like, oh, I gotta just lie down. And I'm like, I'm like, you know, I'm pouring snow all over my legs, just covering like this big mound of snow, and I have like three layers of clothes on, but I can still see my legs like pulsating red. <laughs> like so, like, oh my goodness. And I'm like watching everyone at their doing. I'm like, okay, they're lifting their legs up. They're getting to see my going. So I'm like, okay, let's see how I can do that. I'm like, I can't get my legs to lift up. What's going on? Why can't, why are my feet moving? And I like, just try a little harder. And I'm like pushing, like, I must be doing something wrong. And I, I look and I'm watching these people and I'm looking at their skis and I'm looking at my skis. And it hits me after like hours, like, there's different skis for cross-country skiing than there is for downhill skis. You guys know that? You guys know that? No, no one told me. So I'm just like killing myself out there. And I, uh, so afternoon comes, the story continues actually. I got off from the ski lift, I, I come down, I fall down of course getting up the ski lift. I tumble down a few times, several times actually, except for the time I started going really fast right towards the trees, you know. And that was the only time. And then I, I come over, my friend comes over, picks me up, he's dusting himself off, and I just, I'm standing there and waiting, and I'm just like, realizing he's like, 
getting further or further away. Wait, no, he's not getting further away. I'm getting further away. I'm going downhill backwards now, flailing my arms. People are coming down going, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, no, I don't want to be. Uh, anyways, I get down, and uh, I said, that's it. I'm going to the bunny hill. And uh, the bunny hill, you know, if you don't know, is like there's kids like my kids, like the three, four-year-olds, and, and guys and their girlfriends, and, and me by myself, okay? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't care. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to conquer this. I'm going to master this. I'm going to figure it out. I am determined. I am going to learn how to ski. And so I, I, I'm starting to ski down. I'm, I'm figuring it out, you know? I'm doing pretty well. I actually come down a couple times without falling. I'm doing pretty well. And there's, you know, this little tug rope, you know, that carries. You don't do the ski, but there's this little tug rope that kind of goes like half a mile an hour. And I'm, I'm holding on a tug rope, feeling pretty good in myself, you know? At least as good as you can feel around, you know, eight-year-old girls, you know? And... Uh, and I feel pretty good. I, I notice like the, the drawstring from my hoodie is like on the rope. And I'm like, ah, well, that's not good. So I whip it off. Except when I go like this, it doesn't like come off. It somehow ties a knot around the string, around the rope. Like, How does this even ha- what, what, what? This is really not good. I'm like trying to get the rope off. I'm trying to string off. I can't do anything. And I'm like, ah, I have these stupid poles in my hands. Uh, I, can, I can hold, these poles aren't that big, I can hold the poles and the rope with my left hand, and I can just take it off, no problem. And so I take the poles from this hand, and I put it in this hand. You ever one of those moments, you know, like, you know, you know the roadrunner, the old cartoons, roadrunner, and, you know, the Wally Coyote, and he's running, and all of a sudden he, he looks, and he's like, there's no ground underneath him, he looks one way. That's kind of what it was like for me, it's like, wait, if this hand's here, and this hand's here, what? Whack! I go right face first into the snow. Now, mind you, the string from my hoodie is still attached to the rope, right? So, like, I'm, I'm, just, I'm lying in the snow, and it just, like, chokes me, starts to carry me like this, and slowly drags me up the hill. And I finally just rips off. I roll over to the other side, and open my eyes, and the little 10-year-old girl's like, are you okay? <laughs> Leave me alone. Oh, Sometimes I think life's like that, right? I think life's just like this whole adventure, you know? I try and I try and I try. No matter what I do, nothing works, right? I'm trying to do something good and it always does bad. It doesn't even feel good. And it's like, what's going on? And then just when I think I got it together and things are working, I fall on my face. We fail. We're weary. We're frustrated. Just want to give up. We're nowhere closer to where we want to be in life. It's not supposed to be this way. I just want my life to work. I just want my life to work. If I could just get everything, just something under control, just maybe even a portion of my life under control, everything would be fine. I think, you know, especially when it comes to God, right? I try to do right to be close to him but I feel more distant. I work hard to please him, but I, never, I can never do enough. And so what do we do? We try harder. We get more determined. We're going to make it happen. We're going to make it work. We try to make ourselves right with God and, and make life work by working hard and doing right things. We turn to rules and regulations, rituals and restrictions. 
You know, it's like if I want to lose weight, I put a couple restrictions on, right? I, I stop eating the cake and, and stop drinking pop. You know, I start, I get a, I make a rule in the morning and wake up early in the morning so I can exercise. I set some routines up. I have to run 60 minutes a day. You know, school. Want to be a better student? I said, you know, I got to restrict myself how much TV I watch. I got to start, I got to study more. I got to put more hours into studies. And with God, we turn to religion. So he can control our life and earn God's favor. When we experience failure and frustration, become distant from God and others. My sophomore year, as I was exploring, I was in this place, you know. I thought I was doing everything right. I was going to church. I was going to a Bible study. I was getting involved in the crew. I even went to the fall retreat. And he even started reading my Bible a little bit, you know, outside of just church. I thought, yeah, everything's going well, you know. Things are going good. But life still stunk. Life still was hard. I still struggled with school. I was still struggling with my friendships. My sister, who, had this, who was the epitome of faith in Christ, you know, had a, was, we discovered she had a brain tumor. Things were not going well. And I was just thinking, God... I'm doing all these things for you. And what are you doing for me? I'm doing all these things for you. And what are you doing for me? Is there any hope? Is there any good news? Well, tonight we're going to continue our series on uh, who do you say I am about Jesus, looking at the book of Mark. And we're going to look at an interaction Jesus has with a group of religious people called the Pharisees and see if he, how he can provide a solution to our problem. So you can turn to the book of Mark in chapter 2, and I'm going to pray for us as we begin. God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirits, and ask that you would, you would speak to our hearts today and work in us and reveal more of yourself to us this evening. Praise in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks um, to introduce the passage, You've already seen that Jesus has shown himself to have authority over the spiritual forces or the powers. And he has authority to forgive. And now we're going to see him establish authority over religion. And to understand this passage, we need to understand the context, just like any passage. And so one of the things we need to understand is the people of Israel long considered themselves to be the people of God. They were the people of God. And at this time, they were living under Roman rule. You know, they're living in their, their city, but there's Roman rule over there. And so they feel burdened, they, they feel marginalized, um, things certainly weren't going their way. And the Pharisees, now they're the people that kind of held things together. You know, they made sure their traditions were kept intact, they were keeping things in order, they are trying to keep the rules in place, and so that they can, you know, keep themselves separate. And along comes Jesus at this time, you know, and the Pharisees just can't ignore him, you know, um, He's, he's performed miracles, healing people. He's teaching with authority and giving instruction on what their, uh, the Hebrew scripture says. And he's developing a following. People are following him. And now he's also beginning to make some outlandish claims, like he can forgive sin. And so the Pharisees can't ignore him, and neither can we. We can't just be like, well, hey, something, someone out there. No, we have, we have to consider what the Bible says about him, what he did. And so let's look uh, at the word of God. So in Mark chapter 2, the story starts as this. One Sabbath, 
he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain and eat it. And the Pharisees were saying to them, Look, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those were with him. And how he entered the house of God in the time of Abithar, the high priest, and ate bread with the presence, which is not lawful for any, any but priest to eat, and also gave to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So what's happening here? Well, the Pharisees are accusing Jesus. You know, they're, they're looking for something to accuse him because they, there's all these things he's doing, all these claims he's making. They're looking for something to accuse him. They're accusing him of violating the Sabbath. Now, they're going around and they're taking the, the food from the grain, the fields. Like, that's, not, that's not wrong. That's been established by the people there, by the, by the law, that if you have a grain field, like you leave that food for people as they're passing by. And so to take food, that's not stealing. What they're accusing him of is, is about the Sabbath, the Sabbath day. Now, if you don't know the Sabbath, you know, this is an important day for the Jewish people. This is a day that they honored, something that they, um, they took very uh, important because it set them apart from the rest of the world. They believe that, you know, God created in six days, and the seventh day, he took a day to rest, and that God commanded them uh, to honor the Sabbath. And by that, they wouldn't work. They weren't, they weren't to do things that would bring profit to them. Um, and so... Here's this, this rule. You're supposed to rest on the Sabbath. And Jesus' disciples, they're like taking grain. They're taking. So it wasn't the eating part, but the fact that they're taking it, putting it in their hands, and opening up the thing. And they said, that's too much work. You can't do that. Now, it wasn't against the Sabbath rules to eat, right? To feed yourself. You know, because the purpose of the Sabbath, right, is to rest. And so if you're not eating, you know, that's probably not very restful. Um, so this was something that was okay. But the Pharisees, in their mind, um, the standards are violated. Because the Pharisees added... Uh, different rules on top of the rules of God. Some accounts say there's maybe 39 different rules they added on top of what the Bible, actually, God's word actually says about how to honor the Sabbath. And so, even though it was what they were doing was violating what the Pharisees said, what they couldn't do, they were not violating what God's law, what God had said, was uh, against his command. And so they weren't even violating the Sabbath. But you know what, Jesus, how he responds? He doesn't say, hey, that's not a rule. He doesn't say that, he doesn't address that at all. He could have said, you know, it's like, hey, then of Deuteronomy, which just said, don't add or take away from the law. You know, you shouldn't do that. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say he's against the Sabbath either, right? He doesn't um, say, hey, this is, I don't have to do the Sabbath, you know. He affirms the Sabbath. He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, so he's affirming it. He says the Sabbath is made for man, not man for this, or, yeah. Um, not man for the Sabbath. So he's affirming it, not against it. You know, it's not like he's putting a video up says, hey, I'm Jesus, but I'm not a Sabbath follower. No, he's not doing something like that. Right? In fact, we see throughout the New Testament he's, that Jesus says he did not come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill it. And so what Jesus does is he, he's clarifying the purpose of the Sabbath. Right? He clarifies the purpose. The Sabbath is for man not man for the Sabbath, okay? It's like, you know, practice is for the game, not game for the practice, you know? You don't play the game so that, like, you can do more, do better at basketball. You practice so you can actually win the game. That's the purpose of that. And you play, play the game not so you can actually do these different things. The purpose of the Sabbath is not restriction, 
but rest and restoration. The purpose is a restriction, but rest and restoration. To be renewed and to like remember who God is and what God's done for them. Um, to remember that God is in control of their lives. Um, and to restore that, restore that uh, in their mind. And to rest in him. But the Pharisees, they get it all wrong. Right? Um, they become so concerned with not sinning, they added these extra rules. And, and they, they get it wrong, they focus on the wrong thing. They've elevated the customs of man, their own customs, over the law of God. They elevated their own customs of man over the law of God. See, they forgot the most important law. If you look at the Ten Commandments, the first one is to love God. There is one God. Um, Jesus says, most important commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And then to love your neighbor as yourself. But they forgot that. They do all these other laws, but they forget to love God and love other people. It's like, you know, I want to throw a party for my wife. And I was like, okay, I'm going to gather all our friends there. I'm going to invite all of them. I'm going to get, like, these great decorations. I'm going to get all these flowers for her. I'm going to make her favorite food. I'm going to do, I'm going to get all these, I'm going to get some gifts. But I don't invite my wife to the party. I leave her at home with the kids and say, take care of them, you know. Kind of misses the point. I do all these things that are supposed to, like, honor her and, and do these things, but I miss her. What's the point of this party? What's the point of that? And that's kind of what the, where the Pharisees are. Um, and that's kind of what Jesus gets at. He says, hey, um, if you look at the parallel passage in Matthew, uh, where he goes through the same story, he has this line in there. It says, you know, if you knew what this, mean, this meant, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. He desires mercy, not sacrifice. And we see this throughout, uh, throughout the scripture. You know, see, to Saul, he's, Saul has told this, you know, to obey is better than sacrifice. He makes a sacrifice not obeying what God said. But, you know, the people wanted me to. He's more concerned about what people say. In Micah chapter 6, he's, what do I come before the Lord? How, what kind of offering can I bring? Do I do this? Do I do that? Do that? And he says, no. God has told you, man, what is good is it to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. That's what he wants. He wants us to walk humbly with him, to love mercy, to show kindness. And this is why he brings up David in this passage as well. Like, hey, you know, this, this bread was here. It's only for the priests, but the priest gave it to David because, you know, he was in need. And the priest had authority over that, and he could give it to him. And so um, you, you further see exactly how far the Pharisees go in, in following the rules. You look at the next chapter in Mark chapter 3, just a, uh, a little bit over and Jesus is saying to them on another Sabbath day, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and he was, he was healed. He was restored. The purpose of the Sabbath is to restore, and that's what Jesus does here. But the Pharisees are angry, and they immediately decide that they're, they're going to go out and destroy Jesus. They got stuck on the method. They got stuck on the method of what they were doing rather than who they were trying to please and who they were trying to know. It's kind of like, you know, the, you know, the man who gets married and has kids, and he's like, I need to get a job. I need to work hard. I need to do, I need to get enough money so I can provide for my family. I need to provide a house for them. I need to provide food for them. I need to provide, you know, get, you know, toys for them to play with. I need to provide activities for them to be involved in, and he provided education for them. And so he's working hard, he's doing all these things because he wants to provide for his family. But in the meantime, 
He spends no time with his kids. He spends no time with his wife. He never has time for them because he's always working to provide for them. And in time, he gets bitter towards them. He gets angry about them. And he doesn't engage in a relationship with them. It's easy for us to do that. And that's what happens with Pharisees. They get so focused on the law, they forget to love. But Jesus, you know, he doesn't attack the law or religion. He claims authority over it. He doesn't attack the law or religion. He claims authority over it. He's not against the Sabbath. He affirms it, and he clarifies it. And he can because he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I have authority over it. I can tell you what it's really supposed to be about. The Pharisees made the Sabbath a burden, but God established it to bless. The Sabbath was there to remind them that God will take care of them. You don't need to work on this day. God will take care of you. But the Pharisees have made it something that goes, I have to take care of myself. Beyond that, saying he has authority of the Sabbath, we look in that parallel passage in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus says this. Jesus says, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here. The temple, the Sabbath, well, these reflected like the greatest symbols of hope for the Jewish culture, the Jewish people. They're the epitome of their religion. This is what this was what's most important to them. And now Jesus says, He's greater. I'm greater than these. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath and the temple, you know, uh, you know, says, okay, the Sabbath is for man, man is not for the Sabbath. Then what's man for? Man is for God. Man is for God. We are we are designed to be connected to God. And the temple and the Sabbath were established to, were meant to reconnect us with God. It's meant to reconnect us with God. And Jesus being greater than temple, being the Lord of the Sabbath, is the one that can reconnect us to God. God did not create us for rules or regulations, for restrictions or religion. He created us for relationship, for relationship and rest in him. Chuck Swindoll says, Jesus did not come to earth to establish a new religion. He came to earth to restore a broken relationship. He came to make the primary primary again. And the secondary activity of obeying the law was always to serve the primary activity, to love God and enjoy him forever. Jesus did not come to earth to establish a new religion. He came to earth to restore a broken relationship. And that's our real problem. Is a broken relationship. So Jesus has a message for, for those of us who are trying to make ourselves right by doing the right things and avoiding the wrong things. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the righteous one who can give us rest and joy. And Jesus says this, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He doesn't say, hey, come to the temple or come to church. Just come to me. Come to me. He doesn't say, hey, come to me after you clean yourself up, after you get rid of your burdens, if you put everything aside, come to me. He says, no, all you who are weary and heavy laden, you come to me. And then I will give you more work to do. I'll give you some new rules to follow. I'll give you a, a, a better path and new ideas. I'll, I'll help you to do things right. No. He says, come unto me, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. But then the question comes, how, how is that possible? 
How can Jesus do this? Because throughout the history of this story of God and man in, in, in the, the scriptures, there has to be righteousness. And in my righteousness, our righteousness is just filthy rags, you know? Our good is no good at all, and I still do lots of bad things. What do I do with my sin? All my work is worthless. What can I do? How do I come? Come to him. Well, Jesus died the death he should have died and lived the life he should have lived. So you can rest knowing the work is done. And live the life he intended you, a life of joy and relationship with God and with others. Jesus died the death you should, you should have died and lived the life you should have lived. See, when we place our faith in Christ, when we come to Christ, we're not only coming him to him to forgive our sins, he also gives us his righteousness. It's a great exchange, you know? He takes my sin, he takes it and puts it on a cross, and he gives me his righteousness. That doesn't seem like a really fair trade in some ways. It seems a little bit lopsided. But that's what he does. He gives us his righteousness, and he takes my sin. <coughs> you know, it's, it's like, uh, it's not like we get a mulligan in golf. I'm not sure if there are any golfers out there. It's not like you just get a do-over, you know? It's not like I go up to the thing, and I, I hit, the, hit the ball, whack, and that's more of a baseball swing. But, you know, and I hit, hit the, the, the ball hits the tree, and it bounces back about a mile, and goes into, you know, into a sand trap in the water. You know, it's just a terrible shot. It's like the worst possible shot out there. Like, I'm in the hole. There's no way I'm going to do, do anything well. It's not like he says, eh, that's okay. You know, you get a do-over. Do it again. We won't count that against you. If that was the case, it would be whack again right into the tree every single time. But he doesn't just give me a mulligan. He doesn't just give me a do-over. Instead, he says, okay, that's, that's your shot. And then he gets up there, and he swings away. And it's hole in one. And he says, all right, that's your score. That's what you write down on your scorecard, a hole in one. Instead of trying to be good, we trust in Christ. We trust in Christ's righteousness to make us good. You know, Paul, Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 3, this is a great section, and I wish I had more time to go through it. But I just want to read it to you. Because here's a guy <coughs> that could have really had confidence in himself and said, hey, I can do it. And so he writes, If anyone thinks he has more reason for confidence in the flesh or in himself, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As for righteousness, under the law, blameless. Blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Look, he says that a couple times. You know, that which comes through faith that depends on faith. Let's well, make sure we get this. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You know, I used to look at this passage and think, yeah, I've got to put aside, I've got to lose all things. Well, that must mean like I need to, yeah, throw away and count rubbish all the things that, you know, like the party scene and, and having lots of money and lots of things. But that's not what he's, 
he's saying. I, you know what he counts as rubbish? What he, what he just throws away? His righteousness, his good deeds. That's what he's giving up. He's trusting, he's trusting in the work of Christ and all that so he can know God, so he can know Christ and be in relationship with him. See, trying to be right with God through religion is, try, is like trying to cross-country ski using downhill slope skis. Right? The skis might look the same. Downhill skis and cross-country skis, they, they look the same at a distance. You can't tell there's any difference to them. But if you get closer, you see the downhill skis, like they hold the back of your foot so you don't move off of it. But the cross-country skis, you can lift the back of your leg. There's different functions for them. And so if I'm, you know, if I'm trusting in religion and things that I'm doing, I'm going to be restricted. It's going to hold me down. It may look the same as faith in Christ, but it's very different. When I try to use downhill skis for cross-country skiing, instead of something, doing something good for my body, it actually harms it and hurts it. When I'm doing religion, practicing religion, it actually hurts me. It hurts me in, um, in knowing God and experiencing God's love and who he is. Downhill skills are useful, but not for cross-country skiing. Religion is useful. They can do nothing for my relationship with God. It can do nothing to, to do, take care of my sin. Colossians 2 talks about this. We don't have time to look at it. It just goes in, you know, appears like wisdom, you know, do not touch, do not handle, do not taste. It appears as wisdom. They can do nothing to take away your sin. It can do nothing for your relationship with God. So instead of walking in religion or the law or self-effort and following rules, you can walk in grace, walk in love, and follow Jesus. So we have these two options. We have religion, and we have a relationship with God. And for practice of religion, you know, then being right and doing right is ultimate. And when being right and doing right is ultimate, we become angry and bitter with others who get in our way, who make us look bad. But when I'm enjoying freedom in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I know him, and I'm, I know his love for me, and I know I'm ex- forgiven and accepted by Christ, I can forgive others. I can, I, can, uh, I can love other people. When we live out the Pharisees' standards, instead of caring for others and showing compassion, we're callous to their needs. When we trust in Jesus, we are free to show kindness to others because we can lose our reputation, we can sacrifice our goals because we experience love and acceptance through Christ. Religion leads to fear and frustration. With Jesus, he offers fulfillment and fruitfulness. Jesus offers fulfillment and fruitfulness. So what do we do with this news? Well, <coughs> you know, if you're like me, you know, like many of you in this room, I grew up going to church every Sunday. When I was five, I heard about Jesus dying for my sin. I believed in him. And, uh, but I didn't really like being called religious. And so when I heard someone say, hey, don't, not religious, but, you know, I'm a relation with God, I'm like, hey, that sounds good. I like it. Unfortunately, I had no idea what that meant. And so I, you know, I kind of looked at my own friendships, I, and I had trouble making friends, uh, maintaining those friends. So I figured I had to do something to make sure my relationship with God was right, too. With my friends, I felt like I had to, you know, always do the right thing. I had to be funny. I had to uh, be smart. I had to be, you know, be good at sports. I felt like I had to do that to gain their friendship. And so I felt, God, that must be true with him, too, to get him to like me and accept me. Or at least make sure that I do anything wrong to jeopardize that relationship. And so I was always asking, what do I have to do? And I was always trying to do things to make sure that God loves me. Trying to minimize my mistakes. 
But God doesn't play games. God doesn't play games. He gives grace. In games, there's rules, and God doesn't operate by my rules. See, I thought if I did all these things for God, he would do things for me. If I went to church, he'd make me feel good. If I went to Bible study, he'd make more sense out of my life, make me a better person. If I obeyed all God's commands, my life would go well for me. There wouldn't be any problems. But then when I still was sick and I still struggled with school or my friendships, I was, my sister was sick and I was still single, I'm like, God, where are you? Why aren't you showing up? But that's not how grace works. He doesn't just bless me when I do good. He doesn't just bless me because I do good and say, okay, you're good, I'm going to do something good for you. He continually pours out grace. He continually loves me. In fact, everything he gives me is good. Sometimes I can't see it, but it's good. Everything he is doing is the purpose of building that relationship with me. His love is perfect and abounding. He wants me to experience his rest and peace. You know, God's not playing a game like holding something over my head. It's like, okay, try to reach it. Oh, get a little higher. Work a little harder. Work a little harder. Oh, oh, okay, I'll throw you a little bone. No. He lavishes his grace on me. He lavishes his grace on me. He pours out his love on me. I don't have to perform for him. I don't have to, I don't have to work, super, work hard to make him to like me and love me. He pours out his grace on me. I still miss it. I still lose focus. I buy into the lie. I must be impressive. And become, and become concerned what others think of me. And I try to impress them, impress God. I beat myself up and often berate others when, I, when things don't go perfectly, things fail. I tend to rest in my accomplishments and my hard work rather than rest in Christ. For example, this summer, you know, it was a great summer for me. Went to East Asia and uh, just felt really close to God. We didn't have internet, we didn't have Facebook, we didn't have TV. And I was able to read a lot of books. And so I came back, I was like, yeah, I want this. And so I focused on no Facebook, no TV, reading more books. But I didn't focus on Jesus. I wasn't focused on him. I was focused on my methods. I was focused on what I was doing. And as a result, there was a little connection with God. Paul says, are you so foolish beginning in the spirit? Are you now being perfected by your flesh? It won't work that way. So what about you? Where are you at? I imagine some of you in this room may need to give your life to Christ for the first time. Maybe you're like my friend Brian, my roommate. You know, he was a good German Catholic from southern Indiana. He's the epitome of niceness. Always the nicest guy. When I talked to him about Jesus and what he did for him, he's like, that's good, but you know, that's not enough. It can't be. It has to be something more. It was about five years later that, that Brian accepted Christ as his Savior. When I asked him why it took him so long, he said, I just didn't think it could be that easy. There had to be something else. Brian knew the answers. He knew what Jesus had done, but he still felt like he had to do something. And for several years, he'd missed out on the joy and peace and the freedom of the grace of God. Or maybe you're in this room and you're like my friend Justin. He was the crude kid from Jersey. He was the one that like, kind of just always tried to pick a fight, his senior year, he walked into the dorm room, sat down at my roommate's desk, and said, hey, what are you doing? And I said, I'm just reading my Bible. You read it? And he's like, uh, no. Uh, I'm not religious like you. And I said, I'm not religious. And he's like, what are you talking about? You're reading your Bible. And I explained to him, like, no, I have, you know, I have a relation with God. I enjoy reading the Bible. And Justin responded, well, God wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. 
I'm too wicked. I've done things. But that doesn't matter, does it? I've done things too. Not like me. I've done some pretty bad things. But it doesn't matter what you've done or what you do. God's love for you is not based on what you've done. It's based on what Christ has done for you. So you can never be too good and never be too bad to receive the grace of God. If you're in this spot, you can pray right now. You can come to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin and giving me your righteousness. I trust you alone to save me and make me like you. I invite you to be the Lord of my life. And some of you, you know, you're like me. You've given your life to Jesus, but you lost focus. You've begun to rely on yourself rather than the Holy Spirit. You've elevated the good, good things like ministry or study above God himself. You got so concerned about doing the right things the right way that you've neglected resting in Jesus and you don't reflect him. You, me, we all need the gospel. We need the gospel too. You need to preach the gospel, you preach the gospel to yourself. Delight in God's love for you and live by faith. And there's, you can pray also, Lord, remind me of the gospel. Give me greater understanding of your abounding love and amazing grace. I want to rest in you and you alone. Overcome me with your love that I may rejoice in you and reflect you to others. In conclusion, our life is a mess. Our lives are a mess. We try to get it under control through religion. We work hard, but nothing works. But Christ finished that work on the cross. That's why God, God rested on the seventh day because he was finished with his work. And now we can rest because Christ finished the work on the cross and he said it is finished. He died the death you should have died and lived the life that you should have lived. He pours out his love and grace and offers his righteousness and his rest. Jesus calls us to come. Come to him in our weariness and our weakness. And we may find rest and joy in relationship with him forever. Let me pray. God, we thank you. We praise you for your goodness and your love and your kindness that you pour out on us. We thank you for your amazing grace that we do not have to do anything to earn your love. We do not have to make ourselves perfect, but you are perfect for us. You died for us, and you want us to be in a relationship with you. You delight in us and enjoy us. May we delight in you and relish who you are. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ.